Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. I'm your host, John Perrine, and if you've been tracking with the last two episodes, you know that we're in a bit of a mini transitional series that is going to be exploring Augustine and the crisis of identity. So my hunch is that if you're anything like me, identity is currently contested. Not only is it politically contested, it's something that we're fighting about, it's culture wars, it's questions around sexuality, it's pronouns, it's gender, it's race. I mean, identity is touching everything in our cultural and political world. And yet, if we're being honest, identity is a personal crisis as well. If I really pressed in on you, could you tell me, who are you really? I know we try to use different tools and personality types and tests like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or Strength Finders, yet each of them is more reflective of the fact that we are longing for something to be able to identify with, longing for something that can name us, that can guide us, that can show us the way forward. And so when it comes to this question of identity, I have long been fascinated with this central character in Christian history known as Saint Augustine. And this episode, finally, after two big sweeping intellectual histories, trying to clear the groundwork, draw out some deeper themes that I've been working on through my doctorate, this episode we're going to turn to the book that made Augustine famous and perhaps for some infamous, the book that stands at the center of Western thought, a book of monumental significance for the Christian faith, and that book is Augustine's Confessions. So without any further ado, let's turn to the Confessions and see what St. Augustine has to teach us when it comes to finding an identity in Christ. Let's dive in. Finally, after all this time, let's talk about St. Augustine. Now, I recently was talking to my mother, who brusquely informed me that she, in fact, did know who St. Augustine was. I did not need to explain it to her again. I feel immense sympathy for anybody close to me in my life right now who has heard me talking almost incessantly the last couple of years about St. Augustine. But my hunch is that most of us haven't really had the time to get acquainted that far back in Christian history. Maybe his name rings a bell, he sort of strikes you as familiar, yet For many of us, I know for me especially, I did not encounter St. Augustine until I was 19 years old. I was on a plane, I was studying the Bible and theology, and I took with me, just on a whim, this book I kept hearing about that was The Confessions. And ever since that moment, when I opened The Confessions and read it for the first time, I just haven't been able to get past how fascinating a character Augustine is. Yet I also want to be the first to acknowledge that the first time I read The Confessions, While so much of it was intriguing, I missed so much of what was going on beneath the surface of the confessions, which is true for any book that is old, any book that is significant, any book that carries intentional framing, structure, and weight. It's easy to miss what the book is all about, which is the whole heart behind the burning word and why we spend so much time moving once more to the scriptures to uncover, to recover what it was they were saying. But returning to Augustine, Augustine was a bishop who lived in Africa. He was from Africa in the very end 
of the Roman Empire. He was in a post at Hippo. You'll often hear of him as Augustine of Hippo or Saint Augustine of Hippo. That was where he was the bishop. But he was from this small town called Thagaste. Thagaste. And it was a Roman post. He had a father who was a somewhat middling, significant provincial man. Uh, He had a post in the town, but would not have been extraordinarily wealthy, would not have been extraordinarily important. And Augustine's mother, as you're going to come to see, Monica, played a central role in her son's story and is going to come up over and over again. So we'll save her to continue to discuss as we go. But the thing about Augustine's life is that we know more about Augustine's life than almost any early church figure Because Augustine told us about it, what you're going to discover about the Confessions is that the Confessions is one of the first true autobiographies. I recently saw online that a case has been made, Josephus, in a book that he entitled The Life, is actually the first autobiography written around the time of Jesus. But there's a much broader sense that our whole understanding of what an autobiography is the sense in which a person sits down and reflects upon their life, is going to use their life as this source of meaning to draw together themes and threads and reflections on the nature of what it means to be human. Augustine is the source. He's the first. He is the figure, the fountainhead. If you've ever read an autobiography, you are reading something that stands in the tradition that was inaugurated by St. Augustine. As you're going to discover with this book, if you've never picked it up and read it before, it's not just that Augustine weaves this fascinating tale where he's going to invite us in, like any good autobiography, into those intimate details, those sort of surprising revelations of the person that Augustine was, the things that he did. Uh, Some stories are going to be funny. Some stories are going to be quite serious. Some stories are going to involve tragedy, while other stories are going to highlight Augustine's deep reflections and ponderings on the biggest questions of life. But what makes the confession so unique that I would argue has still never been matched to this day, is that for some reason, and he really innovated here, this wasn't tradition, there was no one else doing this, Augustine decided to frame his reflections on his life as a prayer before God. So you're going to see every book, this is just a quick terminological note, ancient world, they often split their writings up into books, what we would typically called chapters, but you'll sometimes hear referred to in ancient works that there's the book and then there's chapters within the book. So just in case you get confused, I'm going to be talking about books. There's 13 books in the Confessions, yet they're not separate books. They're actually just more like chapters that we would use today. And then chapters within the books are kind of more like paragraphs. So hope that helps. To come back to Augustine's books, his 13 books are each going to start and be framed by a prayer that Augustine is praying before God. Now, I found this even more beautiful. It's not confirmed. It's a hypothesis. But one of the scholars on Augustine, Robin Lane Fox, is going to suggest that he thinks the best that we can tell, Augustine was known as an orator. So he was known as someone who would give speeches. And it's likely that most writers in the ancient world, you had no computers, you had no typewriters. How do you structure and frame your thoughts in a coherent way? that is going to have some sort of elegance and flow to it. Well, most, most writers would have some sort of scribe, someone who was writing down what it was they were dictating to them. That's why some of the writings, particularly of the Apostle Paul, sound almost like they're sermons, right? Like he's giving you 
his preaching, and it's probably because he was preaching to someone who was writing down what it was that Paul was saying. Well, here, in the case of Augustine, Robin Lane Fox has suggested that he thinks Augustine wrote his confessions while he was praying. So, in a way, Augustine invites his scribes in and says, write down the prayers I'm about to embark upon. And then Augustine, in the sweep of his work, is just going to pour forth speech. Now, clearly, it's intentional. Clearly, Augustine was incredibly good at what he was doing as an orator. So you're going to see a lot of style, some flourish, but you're also going to catch one of the reasons why the Confessions has been so monumental in the history of thought is that there's something incredibly authentic about the voice Augustine offers, where it really does feel like you're peeking in to the inner chamber of his home, where he is kneeling before his God, and he is searching, wrestling, examining rigorously the innermost content of his soul. And Augustine is offering you this invitation to come with him and to see what this exchange looks like. And so when it comes to identity, because that's my goal, my focus, my hope is that by taking you to the confessions, the practical outworking, the pastoral outworking I would offer you are some tools that Augustine wants to equip us with when it comes to discovering, to uncovering, to examining our own identities. And it's going to actually be a pretty complex task. That's part of what's brilliant about Augustine. He doesn't shy away from the nuances of what that means. He's not going to give you simple self-help tricks here. No, Augustine is pushing you and is pushing me to enter into our own innermost heart. He wants to push you to go as deep within yourself, within your mind, within your memories, within your own reflections, within your own sins, with all of those moments, those embarrassing moments, those moments you hoped no one would ever see, but that you know deep down God was present to, all the way across to the the moments of glory, the moments of intense pleasure, those moments when you got swept into happiness or delirium or excitement or energy or anxiety. I mean, Augustine looks honestly and openly at all of them and invites us to do the same, which is why, which is why before we begin looking at the actual book, I just have one argument to make to you. And that argument is that the more I've looked into this, the more I've begun to realize this book that we're about to explore, The Confessions, has stood not only at the center of Christian thought, but particularly stands as the central work that is motivating all postmodern thinking that has been taking place over the last 150 years. So there's some friends, and I love these friends, who are fascinated by the early church Greek fathers, those like Gregory of Nyssa and Origen and Basil and John Chrysostom. These guys are great, Athanasius, whoever you want it to be. These guys are wonderful to explore. I highly recommend getting into all of the church fathers, much as I recommend moving through the medieval works of Aquinas and Anselm, moving through the Reformation. Any section of church history is worth getting into because you will discover when you do that the people who stand there have something monumental to contribute. That's why they've stood the test of time. But when it comes to a figure that stands at the center of Western theology, it's easy. I'm not even exaggerating. It's easy to make the argument 
that you could not have initiated the Protestant Reformation without Augustine's influence on Martin Luther. Martin Luther was, in fact, an Augustinian monk. I often miss that point until I started studying more Augustine. So Luther is reading Augustine. He's wrestling with Augustine. He kicks off the Reformation. Calvin was deeply influenced by Augustine on all of his Reformed theology. Calvin's going to kick off his institutes with the same question that Augustine asked at the beginning of the Confessions, which is, how do I know God in order to know myself? How do I know myself in order to more deeply know God? Calvin was working out the same agenda as Augustine and just, if anything, pushed Augustine further than Augustine himself even went. But even more contemporary than that, as I have been deeply pressured from various postmodern thinkers. So here I'm talking about some of what we explored in that first episode. Figures like Nietzsche, Heidegger, Wittgenstein, these influential philosophers of the 20th century who shifted all of modern thought off its axis, uh, began to open up all of these really painful tension points, these paradoxes and contradictions within the project that was modernity thinking that led to other existentialist figures like Sartre and Camus and Derrida. What I've been fascinated to uncover as I have walked through the thought of these various postmodern deconstructionalists, existentialists, is that each of them was actually reading St. Augustine, and specifically this work, The Confessions, as a pivot point to unlock and open up some of the central aspects of their thought. So for just a couple examples, there's this fascinating journal entry that Nietzsche wrote as he was working on Thus Spake Zarathustra, his main manifesto around God is dead. And this journal entry reveals that Nietzsche, as he's trying to unpack his deconstruction of this whole modern system, he actually goes back to Augustine and is rereading the confessions as he's doing this monumental hiking circuit, just walking around thinking, composing. He, of course, despises what Augustine has to say. Nietzsche was not a friend to Augustine. He thought Augustine was a trickster and an overly polished rhetorician who was seducing the masses with the sweetness of his tongue. And yet, it's interesting to read Nietzsche's condemnation of Augustine because Nietzsche, Nietzsche sees that there's something here in the confessions that's so vital that if Nietzsche can't get really clear on his rejection of it, then his project, Nietzsche's sort of postmodern Uberman, will to power, cannot exist. And in fact, his phrase, will to power, is borrowed from Augustine. There's a whole lot of secondary, deep cut, academic work on this. And yet it's just fascinating. It's fascinating. Nietzsche would not exist without Augustine. Nietzsche is, is extending and twisting an aspect of Augustine's thought. Another great example of this is Heidegger. Heidegger, who wrote Being in Time, is of course reflecting on the very questions that were driving Augustine as we're about to discover in his confessions. Yet as Heidegger is preparing the content on Being in Time, he actually runs this seminar workshop that he was teaching students in on Augustine. So he reads Augustine with his students in order to prepare to shift all of metaphysical thought off of the way metaphysics had been presented up to this point. Final couple, I just read this fascinating book on Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy, who was so influential in the world of Russian literature, who famously converted to Christianity. Yet this wonderful book called Who Am I, What Am I? by Irina Papernow is going to examine how Tolstoy was looking 
in the way that he wrote, the stream of consciousness, the sense of embodying characters so much that you could actually get into their innermost being. She highlights that Augustine is really the one through his confessions who's going to give Tolstoy the key to unlock his own inner quest. And again, Tolstoy is going to shift Augustine. He's going to move in a different direction from Augustine. But the point I would make is that if you want to understand culture as it currently stands, if you want to understand this moment of crisis when it comes to identity, if you want to understand why, why identity is so contested, why we've been struggling so much over who gets to control how identity is formulated, and why all of this thought has bubbled up in the last hundred years that has spilled over into these very revolutionary tendencies to keep remaking ourselves even as we seem more and more lost over what it actually means to be us, what it means to be myself, what it means to be human. It's all connected to this ongoing conversation that in large part was initiated by St. Augustine and which I would be the first to point out was Augustine really and truly reading the Apostle Paul. So this is a very scriptural conversation. This is a very biblical conversation. It is a, it is a biblical reflection on what it means to be made in the image of God and what that identity worked out through time is going to look like in the life of a confessing Christian. This is some of what Augustine's heartbeat is going to be, and you're going to see it as we work through this book. But I set all that up because I want you to see, without this book that I'm about to unpack, I don't know you can totally grasp how we got where we currently are today, and I don't know that you'll be able to respond to some of the distortions, the twists and turns, to, to some of the confusion that has been wrought because of the way Augustine has been shaken and turned. But with this book, The Confessions, I think you begin to get a clear grasp on where the conversation started, why the conversation about who we are, who I am, who you are, matters, and what vision St. Augustine was building. And there are some important questions that we can disagree with Augustine on that we can reformulate from Augustine. But to see where this conversation started, I think is going to be critical to giving you some practical tools on better understanding yourself. So let's talk about the confessions. I'm going to have the confessions open in front of me. I'm going to read you parts of it. I hope that is enjoyable. If you hear pages rustling, uh, it's me literally working through the book. If you are looking to pick up the confessions, if you're intrigued by this episode, there's a couple of different translations that can be a little confusing. Three I'd recommend. The main one I'm working off of here is Maria Bolding, who sort of did the monumental New City Press translation for the 21st century. Everyone highly praises it, although it has some critiques as well. Henry Chadwick, who was a former Oxford professor of the early church, was a monumental Augustine scholar in his own right. Henry Chadwick has a wonderful Penguin edition of his translation that also is often credited as one of the best. So you can't go wrong with picking up Maria Bolding or Henry Chadwick. Or if you're looking for something just a little more accessible, a little more fresh, the most recent translation is by Sarah Rudin. I think I'm pronouncing that right. R-U-D-E-N. And Sarah Rudin has this wonderfully contemporary vibrant, flowing, very accessible new English translation that, again, has gotten a lot of praise. So any of those that interest you, Henry Chadwick, Maria Bolding, or Sarah Rudin, here's where I want to take you to the very first book, to the opening line. And this is just maybe my last little bit of context on Augustine. 
It's important to know that Augustine was going to be trained at the height of Roman culture's obsession with the power of rhetoric and orators. Augustine was trained professionally in the eloquence, phrasing, and oratory power of the Latin language. And at this time, the most famous rock stars of society, really the biggest personalities, the biggest celebrities, the ones who were viewed to have the most prominent skill in a way, much like we really celebrate today, athleticism in American football or over in European football. And we really celebrate charisma and good looks through the celebritizing of movie stars and television stars or through musicians and their ability to sing. In Augustine's day, the main thing you could be was an orator. So this is the central figure in society, because if you think about it, in the ancient world, if you could get up and deliver a speech that was compelling, that was logical, and that was moving to an audience, then you had the power to command the masses. No one else could outpower you in society if you were able to use a speech to compel a gathered crowd in the center of a city. I mean, this is how politics lived, moved, and breathed. You either lived or you died on the ability of a speech to sway those who were following you. This was the entertainment of the day. People would quite literally gather together famous speeches. In fact, Virgil, who is known as the great poet of the Roman language and Uh, If you go all the way back to Greek society with Homer, right? This was how entertainment happened. It was the great orators. It was the poets and the playwrights who would put together these monumental speeches that people would read for fun. This was how they spent their time. They would recite these great speeches. Yet, the final thing maybe to know about orators is that to be trained in the craft of an orator, what you often had to do was memorize, just memorize, not just portions of speeches, but entire works. So it was not uncommon that an orator was known for having read and quickly memorizing entire works of philosophy, entire sections of Virgil's massive Aeneid, his famous speech. They did this through using memory techniques, And through really focusing their schooling, the way you learn to become a good orator is by simply memorizing and absorbing the sweetness of the language as it flowed through these famous and significant writers of monumental skill. So Augustine was trained in this craft. He rose to a level of pretty significant prominence. He would get all the way up to the imperial court before the emperor. He would be hired by the emperor to prepare speeches on behalf of the emperor that Augustine would recite publicly in the capital of the Roman Empire. So Augustine was no lightweight. He surely was talented. And the reason I bring all this up is because you're about to taste the significance of Augustine's skills and what he's about to drop on you. So there's this tension as you listen to the confessions that you both need to just experience them And you're going to be so moved by how authentic Augustine is being that you're going to get swept away into the eloquence of his speech. But you also have to keep in mind, not so much the manipulation of Augustine as much as the intentional framing. Augustine is not saying anything accidentally. This was a culture that highly valued this kind of speech, that highly valued the power of spoken word. And that would likely have read, memorized to the letter what Augustine was intentionally writing down. And so he knew that he's giving you to the word a precise form of reflection. That he wants you, through example, 
much as he imitated the great much as he imitated the great orators of his time he wants you to step into the world that he's going to offer to you and to imbibe it with your own self your own soul your own confession so augustine's going to start like this great are you o lord and exceedingly worthy of praise your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning And so we humans who are a due part of your creation long to praise you. We who carry our mortality about with us carry the evidence of our sin and with it the proof that you thwart the proud. Yet these humans do part of your creation as they are still do long to praise you. You stir us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So that's just the opening paragraph of the Confessions. What's fascinating is that Augustine begins not with his words, but with the words of Scripture. So the very first line, Great are you, Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise, is actually going to be drawn from Psalm 47.2. It's like Augustine knows that if this confession is going to be oriented rightly to God, even his own speech will not be trustworthy. So instead, he's going to borrow from the language of Scripture. In his reflection, you may be caught. This first paragraph is setting the tone, it's setting the agenda. In some ways, it's giving you the insight into all of Augustine's theology of identity, of what it means to be human. He's going to say, We humans long to praise you, yet we, in our longing to praise you, inevitably are marked, we're potmarked by this mortality, so by death, right? It's very creation garden language. But then also by the evidence of our sin, with it proof that you thwart the proud. So Augustine sees immediately from the beginning of creation, there is this tension point, this tension point that we're created for praise, we're created with this movement towards God, and yet we're potmarked by death, potmarked by sin. And so, even so, even though sin is holding us down, if you will, it's like a bungee cord that's pulling us back towards itself, we still long to praise God. Augustine's whole theme, his thesis, is that we cannot help but need God because God, as the creator, has infused everything in his creation. Anything that's good is infused with the relationship it has to God. So this isn't that God is in creation. It's that God is using creation. If the bungee cord of sin is pulling us back, then creation and joy are this magnetic orbit that keeps pulling us back towards a need for relationship with God. And so the way And this is so key. If you can capture this, you can get into the heartbeat of Augustine's theology. He's going to say, you stir us so that praising you may bring us joy. I mean, can you imagine the thought? I I can't get past this thought myself. I I would encourage you to honestly just sit with it for a little bit. Augustine's sentiment that you stir us, God stirs us, so that praising you may bring us joy. This is the axis point. This is the pivot that if you agree with, it will reframe your entire perspective of everything that is beautiful, everything that is good, and everything that is true. If you don't agree with it, then you're going to live in a perpetual war of trying harder, restricting all of the good things in your life so that you can somehow demonstrate through suffering how incredibly pious or sacrificial or 
religious or worshipy that you are. But if Augustine's onto something here, he is suggesting the audacious notion that God has wired us in such a way that God is the one who stirs us. So it's actually God moving and working first. This is going to become immensely important in Augustine's later theology. So that when we go to praise God, so that any moment that even a part of our inner being takes its eyes off itself and looks up, looks towards the creator, looks back towards God, that that moment is going to bring us joy. And Augustine says this is all because you, God, have made us and drawn us to yourself. So God is in the business, God is in the work, God is in the hard wiring of drawing us, of pulling us towards God's self. The triune God of love is the emanating force in the universe that is drawing us back into God's very life and love. And it's not a passive thing God is doing. God is not standing off at a distance waiting for us to get our act together. Instead, God is actively drawing us. God is actively pulling us. And he's doing this through our love. He's doing this through our desires. And he's doing this through joy. Oh, I mean, I'm just already feeling this sense of relief at the world that I have found myself in when Augustine gives us this kind of framing. Then he's going to drop his most famous line on us, and it's important to hear it afresh if you can. Augustine's going to say, our heart is restless. Maria Boulding actually has unquiet here. Our heart is noisy. It's not at peace. It's not at rest. In fact, our hearts, our inner beings, I would even suggest that you can replace heart with identity here. Our identity is restless until it finds rest in you. This is the journey for Augustine of every identity. This is the journey of the human self. It is a movement from restlessness, from, I always picture the chaotic surges of a stormy sea within our souls. The sense of clashing and warring forces, the sense of tangled knots. That's one other commentator I really love. He points out this restlessness is not just a sort of rhythm of the ocean. It's the sense in which our hearts have become so coiled, so bound up in themselves, so twisted in its own search for all of the different contradictory things that our heart thinks will love it back that end up causing more pain, more freneticness, more energy. Our hearts are bound up in this restless seizing as it goes to look for anything that will satisfy it. And yet Augustine is clear from the very beginning. Our hearts will not rest. The knot will not become untangled until we find rest in you. As I'm sure you can see, that's a lot. That's a lot to begin with. You can miss a lot by moving too quickly. Yet, Augustine is giving us a paradigm for identity that you're already beginning to sense me unpack and direct. That identity is not going to be some sort of 
static building block. It's not going to be an up and to the right trajectory. Instead, Augustine is going to see our identities as the swirling and competing forces. And yet, much like the bungee cord that's pulling us down and the magnet that is gravitationally pulling us back in towards God. This for Augustine is a better understanding, a better description to say that our identity has these dynamic relational pulls in competing directions. And yet the journey, if our identity is ever going to clarify, if we're ever going to find peace, find rest, and this is going to be a huge question for Augustine as he moves throughout his life. Where was I at peace? Where did I find rest? Then it's going to have to be a movement of our hearts back towards God. And for Augustine, this is just almost easily clear now. And this vantage point and perspective, though he's going to highlight how difficult it was for him to get here. From his current vantage point as a Christian, it becomes so clear to him. If God is the creator of all goodness, if God is love and love is God, then of course his heart will have been looking for that God through goodness, through joy, through love his whole life. And it means that he'll have looked in the wrong places, he'll have searched in the wrong directions, but ultimately every moment, every memory of his life where he was being driven by desire for something was an invitation back to God. Do you see how for Augustine, everything, everything is connected to God. It's just a matter of whether or not our hearts have moved truly towards their destination, their source? And this is going to become a key question. How does your identity move clearly towards the source for which it is intended? Versus moments when maybe your identity went to lunge for something good, lunge for something beautiful, lunge for something true. And instead of actually moving towards God, your identity turned, twisted, it tangled, it pulled back on itself because ultimately your search for that good thing got corrupted, it got pulled off its axis, or it just returned, returned to you rather than actually moving towards that which it intended, moving towards God. Augustine is going to move through this beautiful and profound doxology. I just have to give you a few snippets of it. So just feel the flow of this. You can get a taste of how Augustine is writing. He says, grant me to know and understand, Lord, which comes first, to call upon you or to praise you, to know you, or to call upon you. Must we know you before we can call upon you? Anyone who invokes what is still unknown may be making a mistake, or should you be invoked first, so that we may then come to know you? But how can people call upon someone in whom they do not yet believe? Lord, even while I am calling on you, and calling upon you, even as I believe, my faith calls upon you, this faith which is your gift to me. Jump ahead to another section. What are you then, my God? What are you, I ask, but the Lord God? For who else is Lord except the Lord, and who is God if not our God? You are most high, excellent, most powerful, omnipotent, supremely merciful, and supremely just, most hidden, yet intimately present, infinitely beautiful, and infinitely strong, steadfast, yet elusive unchanging yourself, though you control the change in all things, never new, never old, renewing all things, yet wearing down the proud, though they knew it not, ever active, ever at rest, gathering while knowing no need, supporting and filling and guarding, creating and nurturing and perfecting, 
seeking, although you lack nothing. You love without frenzy. You are jealous yet secure. You regret without sadness. You grow angry yet remain tranquil. You alter your works but never your plan. You take back what you find although you never lost it. You are never in need yet you rejoice in your gains. Never avaricious yet you demand profits. You allow us to pay you more than you demand. And so you become our debtor. Yet which of us possesses anything that does not already belong to you? You owe us nothing, yet you pay your debts. You write off your debts to you, yet you lose nothing in exchange. And here's one last section from Augustine's opening to book one. The house of my soul is too small for you to enter. Make it more spacious by your coming. It lies in ruin. Rebuild it. Some things are to be found there which will offend your gaze. I confess this to be so and know it well. But who will clean my house? To whom but yourself can I cry? Cleanse me of my hidden sins, O Lord. And for those incurred through others, pardon your servant. I believe, and so will I speak. You know everything, Lord. Have I not laid my own transgressions bare before you? to my own condemnation, my God, and have you not forgiven the wickedness of my heart? I do not argue my case against you, for you are truth itself, nor do I wish to deceive myself, lest my iniquity be caught in its own lies. No, I do not argue the case with you, because if you, Lord, keep the score of our iniquities, then who, Lord, can bear it? So you get this sense from these early readings the sweep, the grandeur of Augustine's language. I mean, that section on God is stunning. It's as glorious as almost anything you're going to find in the early church. And yet he then immediately turns, he has this tension of turning back so intentionally. And this is what's sort of distinctive about Augustine from some of the other early church fathers. He keeps bringing it back to himself. He keeps bringing it back to his own heart. He keeps taking this God of the sweeping heights, this infinite and glorious and omnipotent and omnipresent God, and he invites this God back into the innermost recesses of his own being, and he asks this God to dwell, to speak, to rebuild, to clarify. This is the dance you're going to find throughout the Confessions. This is part of why it is such a beautiful and stunning book. Hopefully I've intrigued you enough to dive in and read Confessions, at least book one for yourself. Where the rest of book one is going to go is just as fascinating as where Augustine begins. If he starts with this sweeping doxology, Augustine is next going to move towards his infancy. And when you read this, it's almost silly what Augustine chooses to reflect upon. Yet, this is one of the profound early building blocks of psychology. This is one of the first treaties on the beginning place of memory, the beginning place of language in human beings. And again, I've already argued this, but I'll just say it once more. Augustine, through this, in some ways, simple reflection on his earliest memories as a child, is going to set the stage for how philosophers to this day are still talking about what it means to be human. So what Augustine is going to do is go back, and he looks at his infancy, and he asks this question. It's kind of a funny question. What is the first thing I remember? What is the first thing I remember? Now, psychologists, as my wife has told me, have put forth that they're actually developmentally in human brain is this block before the year 
three or four, that it should be impossible for you to have a memory before the age of three. And if you have a memory, something pre-three, it's likely built on descriptions that others have given you because the function of your brain that imprints memories just simply hasn't developed cohesively enough yet for it to actively store anything that takes place before the age of three. But this insight, which Augustine is going to already be on top of, he's going to acknowledge, I, I don't really have an early memory. I cannot remember coming out of my mother's womb. I cannot remember the first years when I was breastfed by a family nurse. I cannot remember before I learned language itself. Yet as Augustine is reflecting on this, he asks, does that mean that I did not exist before I can remember? And here's where Augustine's sort of hinting at something, something deep, something complicated, and yet something potentially profound. Augustine's point in this exercise around his infancy is that if your existence can be connected to something before you remember it. So track with me here on this complicated philosophical thought. Let's say your first memory comes from the age of three. My first memory was, ironically enough, watching Star Wars with my family. At least I think this is my first memory. I have this vague sense of me standing at the top of a staircase in our first home, which we left when I was three and a half. And my family had Star Wars on TV because we didn't own a VCR at this point. That, that all tracks, that all makes sense. And so Star Wars would have been on television, you know, showing. And for whatever reason, my memory is me standing upstairs and it was on TV. And during a commercial break, I ran downstairs to my sister who was shouting, it's on, it's on, it's on. And I therefore went and joined her in watching this movie. There's lots you could psychoanalyze about that being my first and earliest memory. But if that's my first memory, and if your first memory is something like it, the age of three, maybe the age of four, uh, maybe it was a sensation, maybe it was something specific, maybe it was scraping a knee, maybe it was something dramatic. If that's your first memory, but you know, you know from photographic proof, you know from stories that your parent has told you, you know from accounts of your siblings and everything else, you know that you existed before that first memory. Then who was the self that was existing before you can remember it? You tracking with the complexity of that thought? Here's why it mattered in Augustine's day. In Augustine's day, there was a strong sense from a number of philosophers, and this idea kind of has fallen out of fashion of late, but there's, there's something to it, so just hear it out. There's a strong sense that if we could not remember those early years of our life, the point being made is when does your self, when does your soul begin to exist? Are we saying that you only exist when you can begin to remember that you exist? Or are we saying, as clearly logically makes sense, you were existing before the age of three. That was you that was existing. Well, the point then becomes, if you were existing before the age of three, are we then saying the only reason that you exist is when you start sensing things, when your senses come online as you exit the womb, so when you begin to exist in a clinical medical sense, right? So the moment you're born, that's when you exist. Well, that too is complicated because technically, technically you were existing before your birth, before the time that you were announced to be alive. Of course, it was the same you that was in the womb for nine months building up to your birth. Am I right? I mean, you can press me on this. You can challenge me, but there logically, biologically is a continuity. Of course there is. 
the, the baby that is you that comes out of the womb is not somehow definitively different except by standing of law in that you receive a birth certificate that notes the, the minute, the minute that you were born. But clearly, the minute before the minute you were born, you were still existing. You were alive. You were there in your, your mother's womb. You were preparing to come out. And that existing you were doing the minute before you were born has to be the same existing that you were doing before that minute, all the way back to arguably when the seed inseminates the egg within your mother's womb, right? I mean, I am not naive, and I am aware that we are hitting into the highly controversial waters of conversation around abortion. And I realize the further back we go, to the point of the seed inseminating the egg, the more mysterious and complex and sort of loose and meandering all of this becomes. Yet, here's the logic of where thinkers in Augustine's time were taking this. Their argument was that the essence of who you are, the essence or even maybe the container of who you are, what we would now describe as your mind or yourself or your consciousness, that essence container they would call the soul. And to be humble for just a moment, almost everyone across human history up until the last 200, 300 years believed without a shadow of a doubt that human beings had a soul, that, that your soul existed. The place that was who you are, the essence of you, existed even before you could remember it. Your soul was what connected that time in the womb to the time of your birth. If that's true, and I'm not saying you have to agree with that from a biological standpoint, but if that's true, then lots of philosophers outside of Christianity would suggest that your soul existed before you were even conceived. And let's even say biologically, the, the potential of your soul existed within the seed, within your father, but particularly within the egg, within your mother, that your mother has you within her, here's the even crazier part, from the moment your mother is born. So if I haven't totally tripped you out and lost you yet, the biological connection I'm making between a philosophical point is that the place where your soul begins just keeps going further and further back. That's all that Augustine and the philosophers sort of rested upon, that your soul had to exist before you could sense and remember your soul existed. And this leads then to Augustine pondering before God, and he's not trying to clear this up, he's just more trying to acknowledge it. He ponders before God, what does it mean that I existed before I could remember it? Well, for Augustine, instead of trying to clarify what some of the philosophers in his time do, or what some of the materialists, the scientists, the biologists who argue to this day about conception and consciousness and where it all comes from and what it all means, how anyone could possibly study it. Augustine's point is that he does not know who he was before he can remember it, but God does. God knows who he was before Augustine knew who he was. Now just sit with that thought for a second. God knows you before you are born. God has a relationship to you before you can remember it. God is relationally connected, and here the Bible would not shy away from using this language, 
to your soul before your soul even comes consciously online enough to form what you now understand to be your memory and identity, but which God knew even before you could start remembering it. So I have a two and a half year old daughter right now at the time of this recording, and I am creating this podcast just for the speculative space to acknowledge this kind of profound insight. My daughter is living within this season of her life where from a psychological and scientific perspective, she will not remember the memories that I am creating with her right now. But clearly I remember I remember the moment that my daughter left her mother's womb. I was there. The moment that she was born, I witnessed every day of her life from the moment she was born up until this moment right now in time when, uh, let me tell you, she has a lot of personality. She has a lot going on. She is talking. She is laughing. She is crying. She is funny. She is sad sometimes. And I am comforted to know that for as much as I care about my daughter's existence and as much as I am a witness to my daughter's existence, to these two and a half years of of memories that she will never even know, I am far more deeply floored when I ponder that if that is my human fatherly perspective on the self, on the identity of my daughter, then how much more so our God, who holds our entire existence within himself, who remembers what we cannot remember, who knows what we cannot know, who knew us before we even began to know ourselves, and who will know us on the other side of the moment when our memory, when our consciousness ceases. I mean, if this opening thought from Augustine is not reason to lean in and let Augustine keep leading this conversation on identity. I don't know what is. So I'll close by reflecting on this really deep, far over my head, far over your head type of question by calling you to the same response that Augustine calls us to. Here's what Augustine says, your will is that I should praise you, O Lord my God, who gave life and a body to that infant. You will me to praise you, who equipped him with faculties, built him up in his limbs, adorned him with a distinctive shape as we can see. You implemented in him all the urges proper to a living creature to ensure his coherence and safety. And now you command me to praise you for those gifts and to confess to you and to sing your name, O Most High and Holy One because you are God, almighty and good, and would be so even if you had wrought no other works than these, since none but yourself, the only God, can bring anything into existence. All right, so if Augustine starts with this monumental dynamic of the tension, the pull, the pushes, the relationship that's there with God, if he moves to this profound reflection on infancy, what it meant to exist and not exist. He's going to continue with one other conversation. I'm just going to footnote. Augustine begins by reflecting as if he hasn't brought up enough intrigue with speech, with language, how we learn words. This is going to become hugely significant in the 20th century. Speech became the 
particular fascination of philosophers. I mentioned earlier Wittgenstein, who is a profound theorist, a reframer of everyday speech, of speech just as it works in conversation. But when it comes to Augustine, the note I just want to mark here is that Augustine understands part of what is going to mean to be human, to have an identity, is to learn this vital skill of speech. Because when you think about it, it's impossible for you to articulate who you are. It's impossible for you to have coherent and structured thoughts instead of just sensations and feelings without you acquiring this ability, this incredibly vast and mysterious ability to speak, to articulate, that speech is that which gathers, orders, and then frames yourself out to the world. And Augustine will not be the first or the last theologian to note that it is speech that initiates the dawn of creation itself, right? Speech is what's going to kick off creation as God offers his word and through God's speech, it was so. As Augustine is going to be moving through his confessions, it's just interesting to to note he's taken us from memory, which is vastly important in his infancy, to language. And he sees this tension point that our memories are going to become externalized when we speak them. While this is frustrating, this is limiting, our memories, as he's going to highlight, can become lost, they can become tripped on, they can become disfigured, disembodied. Our speech can also be corrupted. Our speech can be used for a lot of manipulative reasons. It can be used to intimidate. It can be used to offend. If these are there at the beginning, Augustine's point is that we don't have many other options when it comes to reorienting our identity than to move first through our memories and then move through speech. So what is it that Augustine is modeling to us even as he reflects on the early origins of his language? Well, he's modeling to us that words, while they can have all of these misuses, words are going to be vital when it comes to our identity. If we're ever going to confess our sins and to invite God into our own existence. So keep an eye on speech. We may bring it up again later. Um, Augustine talks about a time he spent in school. He reflects just on some of the, the distractions, the superfluousness. He says at one point, as he's talking about how much he loved games, he said, I hankered to win myself glory in our contests and to have my ears tickled by tall stories, which only made them itch more hot. And all the while, that same curiosity more and more inflamed my eyes with lust for the public shows, which are the games of grown-ups. He'll then say, look with mercy on these follies, Lord, and set us free who already call upon you. Set free those also who do not yet call upon you, so that they may invoke you, and you may give them freedom. So he's kind of moving through these earliest memories and seeing the ways in which his loves and his desires are both being formed and shaped by the culture and by the education that he has around them. And yet you sense that he, he sees as he's moving through these memories that there are these, there are these impulses, these poles that aren't fully corrupt or fully wrong, but they become twisted through the way that he uses them. One really significant early memory for him is that while he was still a boy, he interestingly, this can easily be missed just by casual reading of the confessions, Augustine actually grew up in a Christian home. He grew up in a home that was nominally Christian, or maybe had at least a father who was pretty uninterested in the Christianity that the home was committed to, had just the sort of cultural nominal status of claiming Christianity. While maybe his mother was more pious or grew more pious or became more and more devout as Augustine grew older and older, 
But he has this early memory where he was open to being baptized young, like he was going to just do it and get baptized. But his mother and his father withheld this from him. So they suggested he should wait. And this was kind of a common practice in the Roman society that baptism was so significant as a public statement, not only of public status and identifying with Christianity, but of a cleansing of sin. So once you were baptized, it was viewed as incredibly dangerous to return to a life of sinning that a lot of parents, particularly of well-to-do families, would withhold baptism at an early age so that you, they just knew you were going to make mistakes. They knew you were going to go out and perhaps live a life of sin. And so for the nominal parent, they were like, eh, why don't you go enjoy it? While for maybe the concerned pious parent, like his mother, maybe she was, you know, before God saying, I am afraid that you will be struck down for your sins if you don't commit to this fully. And so whatever's going on, and Augustine doesn't really know exactly what was going on. He ponders this before God and says, why was it? Why was it that I wasn't baptized then? Would I have been changed by it? Sort of a mysterious, open-ended question. Augustine's really willing to wrestle with the mysteries of his own story, right? Like, why, why did this happen this way? Why was I withheld this gift of baptism when I was so close to it, when I myself at this young age was interested in it? But here's where Augustine, he's okay. He holds this question before God and says, but you, O Lord, you were working. With perspective, I look back and see this will be one of the keys for Augustine, the keys for any of us telling our story. At the time, things that didn't make sense. At the time, things that could have been different. At the time, things that even now you wish might have happened but didn't happen. At some point, inevitably, you have to hold before the Lord and say, but without that occurring, I could not have come here where I am today, O Lord. This is part for Augustine of what it looks like to walk in the mysterious providence of God. He's going to model it to us as he keeps going. I'm going to draw book one to a close here. I'll read you some of the last lines that Augustine offers, and I'll just let this too wash over you, and then we're going to take a pause. This is how Augustine closes book one. In spite of all this, O Lord our God, I give thanks to you the most perfect, most good creator and ruler of the universe. And I would still thank you even if you had not willed me to live beyond boyhood. Even then I existed, I lived, and I experienced. I took good care to keep myself whole and sound, and so preserved the trace in me of your profoundly mysterious unity from which I came. By means of my inner sense, I coordinated my sensible impressions, and in my little thoughts about little things, I delighted in truth. I was unwilling to be deceived. I had a lively memory. I was being trained in the use of words. I was comforted by friendship, and I shrank from pain, groveling, and ignorance. In a living creature such as this, everything is wonderful and worthy of praise, but all these things are gifts from my God. I did not endow myself with them, but they are good, and together they make me what I am. He who made me is good, and he is my good, too, rejoicing. I thank him for all these good gifts which made me what I was even as a boy. In this lay my sin, that not in him was I seeking pleasures, distinctions, and truth, but in myself and the rest of his creatures. And so I fell headlong into pains, confusions, and errors. But I give thanks to you, my sweetness, my honor, my confidence. To you, my God, I give thanks for your gifts. Do you preserve them for me? so will you preserve me too. And what you have given me will grow and reach perfection, and I will be with you because this too is your gift to me.
that I exist. There is something so moving to me about this important work. There's something so vital as you read it, much like a movie gives you this sense sometimes when you watch an incredible movie of purposefulness and direction. Like you actually can find more of yourself when you inhabit a movie. Or sometimes a song when I'm feeling just disoriented and disjointed and frustrated. And then I can listen to this song. It can give me this renewed energy. I can feel myself either soothed by its own grief or motivated by its intensity. There's something in Augustine's own confession that can give this sense of possibility that can occur when we reflect on our own stories before God. If there's any practical advice that I could give you at the end of this opening episode as we keep moving, pay attention to what Augustine has offered us here as a model. And if you do, what you'll see is that you are more mysterious and complex than you probably realize. Your identity is not simple. It will not be summarized in a personality type. It will not be summarized by a pronoun. It will not be summarized by a simple set of job descriptions, key relationships, or status symbols in society. Instead, you are a complex interchange of joy and possibility that is constantly being pulled back by sin and your own finitude. So for Augustine, see how he traces this arc. He begins with the beginning of himself, which draws him in awe and wonder to worship. He moves through his story, through his life, to these early recollections. And in looking honestly at them, he sees that there is silliness. He sees that there is cultural pressure swirling around and forming him. And yet he also sees there are these good gifts that are sort of bubbling up. There are these intriguing moments of possibility where God is already, as the bubbling stream of love underneath his soil, is already sort of bursting up through these divots in the ground, if you will, these divots of possibility. And so Augustine is drawn to praise God for his youth. I think that's one of the most profound postures we can move to the Lord with as we reflect on the story of our beginnings. In the beginning, we ourselves do not know our own beginning. That in and of itself is humbling. Yet in the beginning, God knew us, God saw us, and God was already moving in us in the beginning as God was drawing out these gifts, these important traits, these skill sets, these certain circumstances that were going to become monumentally important to who we in ourself were becoming. And yet God is also going to bear witness in these early days to all of the pain, the growing disillusionment and disappointment, the control from parents, the educational systems that will be flawed. God witnesses the full range of ourself. God holds aspects of our identity that we cannot. And so, just like Augustine, the first step in telling your story is to get right this posture of praise, even as you prepare yourself for confession. So we're going to pause here. There's so much more to go in Augustine's own confessions. But for now, are you willing to tell your story to God? Are you willing to confess who you are before God? If there is a practical exercise you could do, I would say, sit down with your earliest memory. Sit down with a spouse, sit down with a roommate, sit down with a friend. 
and recall to them who the beginning of you was. And as you recall those early memories, what comes to the surface that could be confessed, both confessed in sin and repentance, but especially confessed in awe and wonder about the self of you that exists before God. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.